turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10, and I'm going to read for you Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 5 through 19. This is a pronouncement against Assyria, a woe, because, but you'll see that they are utilized by God to accomplish His will in an expression of God's ultimate power and sovereignty, and we'll see how that applies to us this morning. So Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria... Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest. And of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Let's pray together. Lord, would you lead and guide us by the power of your spirit in the truth that we need to hear, that we might apply that which you've given us in your word. And we pray you would encourage us and comfort us in your sovereignty, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Before my family moved back to Texas, we lived in Nebraska in the heartland. And you know that's a place where a lot of farmers live. And farmers are self-sufficient. And we knew one that could fix anything. And it was a really good combination because I can break anything. He could fix anything. 
And so it didn't matter if it was the car, an appliance, something with the house. Even one time when we got the bright idea, we wanted to do some remodeling. He was my first call, and he knew how to do it. Don't you, you know, by the way, if you have somebody like that that you know, let me know. I need their number. <laughs> They're a rarity, somebody who can fix anything. And sometimes when we think of God's sovereignty, we think, wouldn't it be great if we could just call out to God and He could fix whatever's broken in my life or whatever I disagree with? He could fix that. And we long for this powerful God to come in and to fix that which is broken and shattered. This morning, I'm inviting you to an Isaiah view of God. Isaiah's theology of God is absolutely the highest. And let me tell you this, the modern church knows very little of it. This God who is portrayed, if you look back at chapter 6, verse 1, the God who is portrayed as high and lifted up, modern Christianity knows little of a God who is in absolute control of everything in this world utilizing by his providence things that happen to us, good things, bad things, all shaping us according to his will. Now, you might think for a moment, hey, wait a minute, time out. I don't believe in a God that is high and lifted up and that controls everything. Instead, when something bad happens, I believe that God is asleep at the wheel. That is not comforting. And that is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that God, through his providence and power, governs all his creatures and all their actions without being the author of sin. I don't know how this works out, but it does. God is, in point of fact, able to shape all of our experiences of life in a broken and fallen world in ways that contribute to his glory and our spiritual good. And we see that, we know that, in part, if you look at Psalm 139, I'll read just a verse to you. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So we have to... If we're going to believe what the Bible says, we have to say God knows what's going to happen before it happens. That's what Psalm 139.16 tells us. And then if we go over to the New Testament, to the book of James, we read this in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What we get there in James is the truth, the doctrine that even when challenging and hard things happen to us, and they do, sometimes it's a result of our sin, sometimes it's the result of someone else's sin, sometimes it's just the result and a consequence of our stupidity, but these things happen to us that are hard, challenging, and when we find ourselves in a trial, we must know that God is still at work 
that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses, here's what's never said in the modern church these days. God uses hard, difficult, challenging, bad things to grow you spiritually. And the value of those things, that spiritual growth supersedes our own need to be comfortable and to live the hill country dream. The hill country dream is not as important as the glory of God. And it is not as important as your comfort level. Your comfort level. And so we go back to Isaiah chapter 10. Well, got to give you Romans 8.28. On the way back to, to Isaiah 10. And didn't you, didn't you notice in Romans 9, which was read earlier in our worship service, didn't you see reflected there so many aspects and themes of Isaiah are in Romans 9, which was read earlier in our worship service, 19 through 29. But Romans 8.28, Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. All things working for good means that whatever befalls us, the good, bad, and the ugly contributes to this good, this spiritual good. And we understand that the individual things might be very challenging, very ugly, very bad, but they somehow, it's a mystery. We can't explain it. They somehow contribute to our good. And that's the victory of Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate Easter in the empty tomb. That from something as bad as the crucifixion of someone who was innocent, life comes from that. God is in the business of being sovereign, superseding over all events. When I say that God is sovereign, what I'm meaning there is He is in charge. He is the king of a kingdom inaugurated in Christ that is coming again. When I say He is sovereign, I say that in the midst of this broken world, your broken life, my broken life, he is able to fit it all back together in a beautiful way. And one day we'll give him the praise and the glory for it if you know Jesus. But for now, we have to trust and we have to persevere. So God is sovereign. And sometimes we think, well, God's sovereign as long as he's doing what, what I want. As long as I agree with it, he's sovereign and he's in charge. And that just isn't the case. And I get a kick out of when people say, let go and let God. I'm, I'm going to destroy two Christian cliches for you, and I'm warning you. And I'm warning you ahead of time, if you like that footprints in the sand kind of poem, just plug your ears. <laughs> okay, the first one is let go and let God. How absurd is that? You don't let God do anything. He does what he wants. And then footprints in the sand. You know what I'm talking about. And, and I mean, I get it. Oh, it's such a sweet thing. He carries us. He is always carrying us. Always. There's only one set of footprints forever. We are never alone. And he is the sovereign God. And so as we come to this passage, I'm going to show you two things that encourage you and invite you to have 
this Isaiah view of God that he is high and lifted up, that he is sovereign and over, superseding over everything that happens. And I want to encourage you with that and invite you to that. First, I'm going to show you that he is Lord, he is sovereign, he is Lord over all of history, over all of history. And looking back to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, this woe is pronounced, woe to Assyria, and let's hit the pause button for a second. Assyria is a kingdom, an empire that is rising, threatening Israel. They're the ones, Israel's a divided kingdom at this time, and they're the ones who are going to conquer the northern kingdom, which is sometimes called Samaria, Ephraim. Uh, in the southern kingdom, they're threatening the southern kingdom. And God here says he's the Lord of history because this empire, they're going to follow his exact directions. They are the rod of my anger and the staff in their hands is my fury. God is saying, I'm able to orchestrate everything that happens in history, including causing this other nation to judge you. And it is a just judgment. We've gone over that. Read Isaiah 1 through 5. And then look in verse 6, against a godless nation I send him. Whoa, God is talking about his own people there. They're a godless nation. That's how far they have fallen. And it is his wrath that he, they're going to take spoil, seize plunder, tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is able to do this. And look in verse 7. But he, and this is talking about the king of Assyria, who's the commander of this rising empire, does not so intend. Now, this shows you that God is sovereign over history because the king of Assyria does not even, he's not even cognizant that he's been being used by God as a tool to accomplish God's will. He does not so intend, his heart does not so think. Does that stop God from using him in the way that he wants? No. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. And then in verse 5, now this is, I'm going to give you a little tip here on interpreting Isaiah, on interpreting Isaiah. Notice here in verse 8, for he says, you got to figure out who's the he there. So we're talking about the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, for he says, and then this is a quotation uh, from Sennacherib, and listen to the arrogance are not my commanders all kings? And what he's saying here is he's saying that the people in his army are former kings of nations that Assyria uh, in, in history has conquered. So my, my lieutenants, as it were, are former kings who are now working for me. And he says the same thing in verse 9, only uses geography to make the point of how the Assyrian Empire is assimilating and taking over and growing. In verse 10, another boast is my hand, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. So the king of Assyria is saying his hand has reached out through his army. And they have conquered nations who are idolaters. And that the king of Assyria is more powerful than the gods represented by the idols of the nations. 
And then there's this sort of dig at the end of verse 10. Uh, those carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, basically saying God's people are amateurs at the idol worship. That Assyria has conquered those who are more into the idol worship than Israel. And so they don't have help then from these gods. Sennacherib is the conqueror of those other gods, is what's being communicated here. And then verse 11, shall I not do, listen to that self-determination there, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So very arrogant. And I'm going to, spoiler alert, we're going to go to Isaiah 37 in a minute, and we'll see if that's true, if Sennacherib conquers that way. And so as we come to and we see that God organizes all of history for his glory, he is that great that he deserves all the glory, that what happens to you, what happens to me is part of this story that God is weaving together for our good, for our spiritual good. There's always the question when we think about God's sovereignty. He's in charge uh, without being the author of evil. Everything happens by his command. The question that really comes up, and I think it is a, a, a dilemma, is how can God let bad things happen? I mean, if he's really in charge, how come he's allowing something bad to happen to me? I might paraphrase that for Bernie. <laughs> I might paraphrase that for Bernie. If God's in charge, how come he's doing that which I disagree with? And so, as you think about that question, it requires a response because really it gets into, well, what's our response? What's an appropriate response to the painful things that happen to us or the trials that we are enduring? What's our right response? And, and there's kind of a joke of a theologian falls down the stairs. He falls down the stairs and he says, ah, thank God that's over with this sort of fatalistic view, or sort of giving way to the stoicism that's very popular in our age right now, that we just have to endure. There's some real beauty in God being sovereign, and there's some real grace in persevering through difficult times that communicates to us what our response to painful situations uh, would be. There are painful things that happen to us in life. There are results of living in a fallen world that splash up onto us and cause us pain. And the beauty of Christianity is to be able to say and experience that pain, but still have hope and trust in God. And so one of the applications of God being the Lord of history here is really to encourage us to evaluate our expectations. That we, who dwell in a country during an opioid addiction crisis, we are addicted to living pain-free. And we should adjust our expectations. That in point of fact, if this world was created perfectly and then ruined by the fall 
that we need to adjust our expectations to reality. And in adjusting our expectations to reality, that we can understand, we can find hope and trust in God and His sovereign work. That somehow these painful things that happen to us can be moments of trust in God. When painful things happen to us, you basically have a choice. Either you're going to blame God and move further away from Him, or you can be invited into a deeper relationship with Him in the midst of our pain that we could trust Him all the more, that we could trust Him all the more, even in the face of disaster, that we could trust and hope in Him. After all, Isaiah, the underlying question in all of the book of Isaiah is, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your idols? Are you going to trust the earthly alliances that you form? Are you going to trust the illusion that you think you're in control of your life? Or will we trust in a sovereign God who orders our life His way and doesn't ask us to vote? And the hard thing about God's sovereignty and the fact that we don't get a vote on how things go in our life, certainly we're responsible and certainly we're affected by the fall. But God doesn't ask us our permission to introduce painful trials into our life. Because if he asked for permission, we would always say no. That's the reality of who we are. But we have a God, and this is demonstrated for us at the cross and in the gospel. We have a God who is with us. He sends a Savior to us that we might know hope, confidence, and assurance of His love even in the most difficult trials that we go through. And I think to Isaiah chapter 43, and this, this is put full face in reality to us, Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Don't we wish that said, if you pass through the waters? No, it's when you pass through the waters. I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why is that? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's the gospel according to Isaiah, right there. For I am the Lord your God. He is sovereign. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so when we think about God being sovereign over all the events of history, we think about those parts of our life, maybe our personal history or global history, and we might scratch our head, why did this happen? And it is a moment, it's an invitation for us to reevaluate our expectations and where those come, came from. But it's also a moment to be invited into trusting in, in God. So he is the Lord of history. That's part of how his sovereignty is expressed. He is also the Lord of the nations. The Lord of the nations. We have Sennacherib talking in verses 8 through 11. God has an answer that follows beginning in verse 13. 
Let's start with verse 12. When the Lord has finished, this is back in Isaiah 10, 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. And I kind of take that as an expression of God's sovereignty. It's as if, you know, have you ever had to tell someone, hey, don't rush me. I'm not done yet. Don't rush me. It's as if God is saying, I'll be finished when I'm finished. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And that speech is there in verses 8 through 11. And the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, okay, remember I told you, tip for Isaiah, who's speaking here? Verse 13, it's, it's God who's speaking. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. By the strength of his hand, he has done it. Notice that hand is in uh, contrast to the hand of Sennacherib in verse 10. Do you see that? By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of people and plundered their treasures. This is God, the fact that he's the Lord of the nations. He's able to rearrange the boundaries of countries, see them rise, see them plundered. Then look at this in verse 14. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. That's an expression of God's power. And the fact that we don't let him do anything. You know, I was, I was out for a jog in uh, beautiful longhorns by where I jog and um, was going to take a picture, so I came up to the wire fence, take a picture, and, and one of the longhorns started doing this, <laughs> you know? And I snapped that picture and ran off because I was like, oh, that fence isn't going to hold back that longhorn. It's a symbol of power. Nothing holds back God's power. Not even our vote against God doing difficult things in our life. That doesn't hold him back. And we have the assurance that he loves us. And he cares for us. And we see that ultimate expression in the cross. And so we can know that as he matures us spiritually, he does so for our good. But he has the power to do it. Like a bull. He brings down those who sit on thrones. He's the Lord of the nations. Verse 14, my hand, there's that expression again, has found like a nest. So you think of a nest as a protected area and God's able to stick his hand even into that protective area. No barrier can hold him back. And we see that he is the Lord of the nations and how he expresses his power. My mom used to say, and she invented this phrase, I'm sure, and had to say it a lot when I was growing up. I've had it up to here. It was never, I've had it up to here. It was always up here. I've had it up to here. And wouldn't you say, every week, we've had it up to here, hearing about the other nations, hearing about North Korea, Iran, uh, Russia, China. I've had it up to here. You know who the Lord of those other nations are? God. And while we read in the media the panic, the worry, the anxiety, we as Christians can confidently go about our life worry-free because we know who the sovereign is and how he guides 
the hearts of princes like the streams of water. God is in charge of the nations. He's the Lord over the nations. And that point is made here in verse 15. Verse 15, and it's echoed in Romans 9. You notice that. It's a, it's a clay it's uh, clay in a pot in Romans 9, and that's a quotation from later in Isaiah. But you see it here in verse 15, it's an axe, and he who hews with it. You know, have you ever used your chainsaw, and in your chainsaw you set it down and it says, mm, I need some bar chain oil. How absurd would that be? And this is the creature-creator distinction. And oh, how our world mixes this up. But he who has created is more powerful over the creature. And so verse 15 is this portrayal of total absurdity, as if an axe is going to boast over the one who hews with it, or a rod holding someone up. You know, those of you who use a cane, can you imagine the cane actually holding up the person? in terms of lifting. And that's the portrayal here at the end of verse 15. And it's absolutely absurd because God is the sovereign. And so we get the conclusion here in verse 16 and seven, 16 through 19. The Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory a burning will be kindled. Put your finger there and check out Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37, 36. How does this turn out with Sennacherib and, oh, he's so braggy. What's God do? Isaiah 39, 36. Assyria comes, surrounds Jerusalem, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And then in verse 38, you see he's worshiping his idols and his sons strike him down. That's how it ends for Sennacherib. Utter defeat by God's sovereignty. He is the Lord over the nations, the Lord of all of history. And we see and know this view of Isaiah. And eventually, how does Assyria turn out? Verse 19, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. You need those trees to build spears and implements of warfare and to be a powerful country. But it's all torn down in the end. You know, there was a I'll, I'll wrap up with this. There was a swanky art show in Miami in February. VIP event. I somehow missed my invitation. But there was this VIP art show, and they had an American artist, Jeffrey Coons, had a, had a piece there. Now, you might not know that name, Jeffrey Coons, but he is, uh, as far as American artists go, he has sold the two most expensive pieces uh, for a living artist ever. He sold one for $60 million and one for close to $100 million. Yeah, we in the wrong business. But so they have this Jeffrey Coons sculpture there. Okay, I gave you some figures there, $100 million, $60 million, mind-blowing value to this sculpture. 
And what it is, and I'm sorry if you're scared of clowns, it is a balloon animal. Looks like a balloon animal. You know where the clown takes this long uh, balloon and sort of squeaky makes it into something and then gives it to you and the kid's like just crying, scared of the clown. But it, this Jeffrey Coons sculpture looked like a little dog, like a little wiener dog, you know, uh, and, and it was made of porcelain, extremely fragile. And so they set it on a transparent podium. It's this beautiful blue color. Everybody is there, all the who, who, who's who of Miami, and they're drinking champagne and crowding around, looking at this art. Woman bumps into the podium. Expensive sculpture goes crashing down and busts into a million pieces. And people at first, they, didn't, they couldn't believe. Remember, I told you those figures, 100 million, 60 million. They couldn't believe this thing went down. And there it is, and, and everybody comes around to look at this broken sculpture. And eventually they start sweeping it up into... <laughs> A dustbin, can you imagine that? And at first people thought, oh, this, this commotion, it, it's, it's some kind of spectacle. It was meant to happen. No, no, it wasn't. And eventually uh, one of the VIP collectors came over. He offered $15 million for the broken pieces that they're sweeping up into a dustbin. I told you we're in the wrong business. And they couldn't believe you're offering $15 million for busted pieces of porcelain. What are you doing? And here's what he said. Here's what he said. Quote, I find value in it even when it's broken. To me, it's the story. It makes the art even more interesting. You know, the reality of God's sovereignty is it makes life that much more interesting. When you trust in a sovereign God and you look at the painful parts of your life or my life and we think back over these, it makes life that much more interesting. And it has value to God, even though it's broken. Somehow God's going to take that and He's going to put it back together. He starts doing that with the gospel and one day, finally, it will all be put back in a way that every tear is wiped away. How we long for that day, don't we? But it has value to the God of this universe who puts the broken pieces back together His way. We can trust Him. He is the God, the Lord over all of history, and He is the Lord over the nations. And he loves us, and he's with us. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that indeed you would help us to trust you in those difficult moments of our life. And when we see how chaotic society or the world is, let us look at that. Let us stand in wonder and awe at how you're going to put it all back together one day. We pray, give us the confidence of the empty tomb in the secure victory that we have in Jesus Christ, the faith which prevails against every trial and temptation, 
would you rekindle it in our lives, that we together might know hope and we might trust you in the midst of the brokenness and pain of our own life in this world we ask in Christ's name. Amen.